Excited to get right back into the plagues. We picked up on the plagues a couple of weeks ago. We started them, looked at the first couple of, of plagues, one and two, and we're going to look at kind of the rest of them today in one way, and the next week we're going to look at them in a, in a different way. So we're going we're to spend a couple more weeks looking at these because there's a lot we could talk about, a lot we could go through. There's a lot that, that we could say that we're not going to. There's just a lot, there's a lot here, but I think what we're going we're gonna to see today I'm really going to drive in on one main point that is just highlighted over and over and over as we go throughout these, and then next week we'll look at kind of a more holistic view of what God is doing in these plagues. But what, what we're doing is, is we're walking through this and we're seeing what these plagues tell us and teach us. We've been in the book of Exodus. We started in the, in the beginning of Exodus, kind of picking up where Genesis left off, the plight of God's people who feel like they've been forgotten by God as they're in slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. God says that he hears them. He sends a guy named Moses who's a failed revolutionary. Moses comes despite his objections. He shows up and he says, all right, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, God, after he meets with him at the burning bush. And, he, and, and Moses is the, the messenger of God to go to Pharaoh and to say, this is what is going to happen. This is what needs to happen. If you'll remember, I'm going to keep coming back to this, Exodus 5 to the central theme of what we're doing right here is we are answering the question raised by Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go. I don't know anything about Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? Who is he that I should obey him? That's the question. It's the central question of this book. It's the central question of our text and the plagues. It's the central question of your life as well. And we're giving, we're giving these responses of why we should listen and why we should obey. That's the driving theme of this. And if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, I said that Pharaoh had no problem with Yahweh being Israel's God. This was not a, hey, you're not allowed to worship that God. He had no problem with them worshiping Yahweh. In fact, he might have even taken Yahweh as part of his own set of gods to worship and kind of put him amongst the pantheon of gods that he worshipped. The problem he had where he said, I just can't do that, was when Moses instructed him that Yahweh was not a God to be worshipped that he was the God to be worshipped. That he was the God who had no rivals and was to be obeyed fully with no reservations and no one else beside him. And that's where Pharaoh said, I can't, I can't go that far. I cannot do that. From there we saw Yahweh began to answer this question from Pharaoh about who he was. And he began by systematically dismantling the gods of Egypt with these plagues. They're not just bad things that are happening to Egypt so that they would eventually kind of cave. They're dismantling their worldview of what they believe to be powerful in their gods. We talked about the gods happy and hecate, both representing fertility and prosperity of the Nile. And we then Moses had warned Pharaoh. He said, look, you don't want to do this. This is going to be bad for you. And he did this before the Nile was turned to blood. And then every surface was covered in frogs, all to show God's, all to show God's sovereignty over those other gods. And that brings us to the next few plagues we'll look at this morning and next week. And remember, 
We know that there are ten plagues. We know what's coming, at least somewhat, even if you've not been around Scripture, if you've not been around the Bible, you've probably heard something about the plagues and know that there's probably ten of them, but they didn't know that. They didn't know how many were coming. They didn't know when this was going to end. It could have ended after one or after two. It didn't need to continue to go except for the fact that Pharaoh would not repent. And that provokes the continued, the continued plagues at the hand of Yahweh. So this week and then next week, we'll spend some more time looking at this. And this morning, I just want to focus in on a, very specific, a couple of very specific uh, applications as we relate to this. How many of you guys watched the show uh, Shark Tank? Show of hands. All right, a few of you. I kind of thought it would be more, to be honest with you. I love the show Shark Tank. My kids love the show Shark Tank. They like to watch it too. Shark Tank, the basic premise is this. you got super rich, super wealthy, self-made millionaires, even billionaires that are in there, and they're coming to listen to these entrepreneurs come and pitch their business, their idea, their product, their invention, and say, will you invest in this so that I can create and we can create more wealth together so that we can build our business. And then what happens is usually a series of negotiations that go back and forth between the really rich guys, the really poor guys who are trying to get the really rich guys to invest in their stuff, and they go back and forth. Now, these guys that are really rich got there for a reason, because they're really smart, and they work really hard, and they understand business, and they know how to, how to, how to turn a uh, a dollar into ten, and that's, that's how they got here, because they are smart and they're good at what they do. I love the premise of the show. I think it's great. It's their own money that they are investing, and they are trying to, to get things. And so what, what really drives the show is the negotiation between the two parties. What, what, what's going on is, is the negotiation where they, they, they kind of give and take. And so these amateurs show up with their lives, their businesses, Lots of times, hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own money on the line. And these professionals can flat out negotiate and typically out-negotiate and outsmart the amateurs that show up. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And it can be tense in these negotiation sessions. If you watch the show, if you know the show, you, you know that things can go back and forth, and sometimes they're asking for 5% of a company, sometimes they're asking for 10% of a company, sometimes they're asking for 50% of a company. Usually the way it works is one person comes in and says, I've got this product, look, I'm, I'm going to sell you know, stuffed frogs here, and I think that you should be able to, to give me a million dollars for 2%. And they say, I'll give you $100,000 for 50%. Deal? That's pretty much how it works. And then they, they try to find some place in the middle for how that is. The, one, one party typically overvalues things. The other party is trying to make a dollar. That's what they're there for. That's what they're trying to do. And then they go back and forth. And sometimes these sharks, as they're, they're known, the investors, sometimes they're patient. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they'll say, here's my offer, take it or leave it right now. And they won't, they won't allow them to negotiate with the other sharks in the room. Sometimes they'll demand those immediate answers. Sometimes they'll negotiate percentages and they'll go, kind of go back and forth. You know, you start at 10, you start at 20, you meet in the middle at 15 or 14 and a half or whatever they decide to do. And then other times they say, here's my offer, take it or leave it. And our text that we look at today we'll see that Pharaoh treats these plagues like he's on an episode of Shark Tank. The problem that Pharaoh has is he thinks he's the shark in the negotiation. 
He thinks he's the one with all the leverage. He thinks he's the one with all the money. He thinks he's the one with all the power. He thinks he's one of the smart guys. What he doesn't realize is that the roles have been completely reversed. And there's not multiple sharks, multiple investors for him to negotiate with. There's just God that he's dealing with. And he doesn't work on the same terms as what Pharaoh is used to. So we're going to see what this teaches us about ourselves and the way that we interact with God, too. So let's get into this. We're going to see uh, plague three. So plague three, you're going to need to turn over. We're going to be in Exodus chapter eight is where this is going to be. Talking about uh, plague three. The first was the water turned to blood. The second was the frogs. Now we get to plague three and God sends gnats. Gnats. What a weird plague. So all of these are kind of weird, but again, these aren't, just, these aren't just random things. These are things attacking different gods, and we're not going to talk about every god that attacks, but just know that every time there's something behind why God is doing this. The word here is not clearly gnats, because there's not a, there's not a Hebrew word for, for gnats. It really just means really tiny, annoying insect. So in, insert whatever you want there. I'm convinced it was mosquitoes. I think that that's probably what it was. It's... It, it's Notwithstanding today, it's getting warmer outside. And so what that means is within about a month, you're gonna, I'm going to start having these like red dots pop up on my, my leg. And by August, it's going to look like somebody has dragged barbed wire across my legs. Because for whatever reason, mosquitoes really like me. Like, I'll sit outside, my whole family, everybody's like, oh, it's fine, it's beautiful. And I'm like, i got to get out of here because I'm getting eaten alive. I think I'm just really sweet, and that's the way it works. Or maybe... They like salty. I don't know. But I'm convinced it was mosquitoes. But it could have been mosquitoes. It could have been gnats. It could have been lice. That's what a lot of people think that it is. Whatever it is, it's really small and it's really annoying. And the, the main thing that, that you can take out of this, uh, out of this little, little section here, this is in chapter 8, verse 16 through 19, is that this is the first of the miracles that are performed that Pharaoh's magicians can't pretend to emulate. They can't, they can't try to make it happen. And so even the, the magicians, so Pharaoh's like, all right, you did this. Now, magicians, you do this. But what happens is the magicians say, sorry, Pharaoh, we, we can't do this one. And if you look in verse 19, they say, this is the finger of God. Whenever they realize that they can't make this happen. He says, Pharaoh, this is no magic trick. This is God working. This is their God working, and we can't argue against this. They can't pretend to duplicate it. Pharaoh asks, and they've got nothing, and they say it's the finger of God. One of the other things that's interesting about this plague is it never actually says that it relents. Now, it's assumed that it does because it's never mentioned again in the narrative, and they don't talk about how it, how it continues, but it never, it never talks about how it ends or if it ends. So we'll assume that it does, but it never actually says that. It just moves on to the fourth plague. So we'll move on to the fourth plague as well. This is chapter 8, verse 20. I'm going to read this. Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh, and when you see him going out to the, or when you see him going out to the water, tell him, This is what Yahweh says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. 
But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, Yahweh, am in the land. It will be a distinction. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And this sign will take place tomorrow. So now we see a wrinkle. To this point, the first three plagues have affected everyone. They've affected the Egyptians and the Israelites all the same. But this one is going to be different. It's just going to affect the Egyptians. The Israelites are going to be spared from this plague. Now think about this for just a second. This is important because as these, these things start to escalate, God shields and protects his people from the, 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 the worst of the punishments. But do you notice why he does it? It's not because he thinks that the Israelites are better. It's not because he thinks that they are, are worthy of it or that they should have it. It's, it's, he does this for both Pharaoh's sake and for Israel's sake. For a couple of different reasons. Remember, Israel's learning a lot about who Yahweh is, too. They're learning along with Pharaoh. They don't know a whole lot about how God works within the world. They've not seen a lot of this. Yes, they have the history of Joseph, and they have the history of, of, of that family and how, how God called Abraham. Yes, they have all of that history, but they don't know what all Yahweh can do yet. We're seeing right now this, we're learning this as we learn this. Is, this is the first time Israel's learning a lot of this too. And so you can imagine as they're learning this and they're seeing these first couple of plagues, one, two, and three, and they're affected by all of them just the same. You can imagine them saying, well, what good is it for us to have this God if he's going to punish us the same as he's going to punish our enemies? What kind of God is this? So as they experience this power for the first time, certainly for the first time in their lives, this is important because it allows them to conclude that God is indeed good to the people that are his. It would have been easy to conclude that God doesn't really have a side for either one. He just punishes indiscriminately. At least Pharaoh had the chance to repent. The Israelites didn't even have a chance to repent. They just had to endure the plagues right alongside the Egyptians. But now God begins to spare his people. And why does he do it? Is it because the Israelites are better than the Egyptians? Nope. Verse 22, it says, This way you will know that I, Yahweh, am in the land. That's why God does it. He doesn't do it because the Israelites are great. He doesn't do it because the Egyptians are bad. He does it so that they will know that he is there. That's why he does it. And this is a trend. This is a theme that we're going to see over and over and over as we go throughout this. We'll look at this more next week. But God is answering this question. Remember Exodus 5-2. He's answering the question, who is this Yahweh? And this refrain will come up over and over again. And we'll look at this and we'll see what it is that he's saying. And for today, all, all I want you to acknowledge, all I want you to see is that God is at work. There are massive shifts that are happening as we go throughout this and the way that Israel views their God and the way that Pharaoh views Yahweh. And as Pharaoh and Egypt begin to experience the power of God on display before them, as both of these groups begin to see who he is, they begin to realize just how powerful he is and what all he can do. And what we see as this goes forward is that as God makes himself known, that's why he's doing all of this. And It'll say it in so many of these plagues. But as we go through this, 
what we see is that Pharaoh starts to break. So far, three plagues in, we haven't seen this. Pharaoh asked Moses to relent once. He said, hey, will you make this stop? But there was no indication that Pharaoh was going to break his stance that, that the people of Israel could not go out and worship. He got nervous a little bit. He asked God to relent. But once God relents, Pharaoh turns to his old self. We saw that in the, the first and the second plague. But this is now going to play out a little bit differently over these next few plagues as things increase. Look here at the fourth plague. The flies come and Pharaoh has now had enough. After the frogs, after the blood, after the gnats, now with the flies. In verse 24, and the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the country. Pharaoh breaks. Pharaoh caves. Finally, we can stop. After four of these plagues, we can stop and everything can go back to normal. He says, go do what you need to do, Moses. Aaron, you all go, tell your people to go, offer your sacrifice. Fine, you win. Go sacrifice to your God. He finally relents. But then he adds a condition. Do you see that there at the end of verse 25? Go sacrifice to your God. Where? Within the country. He adds a qualifier to it within the country. But here's the problem. That's not what Moses came in asking for. Moses didn't come in saying, can I, can I, can I go and worship God within the country? What Moses had come in and said is, we're going to go, you're going to let us go three-day journey so that we can worship in the wilderness, offer our sacrifice. What Pharaoh is offering is that everyone take an evening, do their religious ritual, and then get back to work in the morning. Fine, go worship, but you can't go out into the wilderness. You don't get three days. You're not going to be able to do that. Just do it here. You see, Pharaoh had begun to take the posture that he was on Shark Tank, that he was there to negotiate. He was there to make a deal. He comes and he says, I tell you what, you wanted this, I'll give you this, we'll meet in the middle. As annoyed and angry as he is by these plagues, he still thinks that he's the one that's setting the terms for what's about to happen. He says, go and sacrifice, but you do it here. And then look at what Moses said. Verse 26. It would not be right to do that, because what we will sacrifice to the Lord our God is detestable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what the Egyptians detest in front of them, won't they stone us? We must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord, our God, as he instructs us. So Moses calls him on the negotiation. He says, that's a bad idea. If we do what we're supposed to do, then your people are going to hate us for it. And they're going to stone us. We're not doing it here. We're going three days. I'm not budging on the negotiation here. I'm not going to budge. So the negotiations are getting, getting tense now. You know, whenever you throw out a counteroffer and, you know, you're saying, well, I tell you what, I want to buy the car for, for $20,000, and then you come back with a counter that says, I'll give you eighteen, dollars and then the other guy says, it's $20,000, things get tense. Things get a, things get a, little, bit, a little bit nervous in between this, because you realize, okay, this isn't a negotiation anymore. Pharaoh doesn't quite realize that just yet. 
So what does Pharaoh do with this tense negotiation whenever Moses comes back and says, no deal, that ain't working? Verse 28, Pharaoh responded, I'll let you go and sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, but don't go very far and then make an appeal for me. He says, fine. You seem to have all the leverage here, Moses. Go. Just don't go far. You can go to the wilderness. Nobody's going to see. But you can't go far. No three-day journey. You don't get a three-day weekend here. You don't get to work these kind of hours. you got to be back to work in the morning. Just don't go far. Pharaoh still hasn't completely given in to the terms. He's the dad that thinks that he's got to negotiate the deal, right? The dad at the car dealership that, that there's a fair price that's on the table, and the dad's like, no, he's got to come off that price. I'm not, I'm not going to pay what he's, he's asking. And, and they get down to the, 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 the final numbers, and he says, fine, throw in an air freshener and a full tank of gas, and we'll buy it. Just to make himself feel better, like, all right, I won that negotiation. And the dealer's like, uh, the tank's full, and it smells like a new car. I think you're good. See, there you go, good. Now you come down on my terms, right? Just to make himself feel better, just to be like, see, I, I won that negotiation. They had to come to me. They had to come to my terms so that he can walk out, you know, kind of strutting about how good of a negotiator he is. This is what Pharaoh's doing. He won't fully cave to the demands that Moses gives. He, he, he keeps kind of like, all right, fine, all right, fine. And he gets a little bit closer, but he never fully gives. Moses says, fine, whatever. The next day, he asks God to call off the flies. But then even on this deal that Pharaoh thinks that he has struck, he reneges. He decides he doesn't like the terms of the negotiation. He slept on it a little bit, and he realizes, you know what? I'm getting the, the raw end of this deal. I've got to save face a little bit. They're going to have to change their position here. And he says, no, they can't go. I can't look weak here. And he retracts. And he says, no, you can't go anywhere. That's how that plague ends. Fast forward to plague seven. You go to plague seven. This is the plague of hail. God sends hail and it begins to pelt the livestock and the servants of, of Egypt. It begins to, to pelt them and to kill them. Pharaoh sees the pain of his people, the power of this plague, and he decides to take a different tactic in negotiation. This is one that we know well too. Instead of the straightforward shark tank style of negotiation, he tries to show that he, had, that he had really heard from God this time. And he tries to play this card of, of false repentance. This is Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 27. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. He says, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is the righteous one. And I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to Yahweh. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. So this sounds good. Finally, we've gotten to the, the seventh plague here. Finally, Pharaoh has had enough. All the things that he says are true, right? They are. They're, they're all true. Everything he says is right. He calls God righteous. He acknowledges his sin, his people's sin. He caves to their demand. He says, fine, go. Finally, we can stop here at plague seven. And we could have been talking about the seven plagues of Egypt. But not so fast. Moses has a different take on what Pharaoh is doing here. Verse 29. Moses said to him, when I have left the city, I will extend my hands to Yahweh. 
The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth belongs to Yahweh. But as for you and your officials, I know that you still do not fear Yahweh, our God. Moses sees through Pharaoh's false repentance. He realizes that the offer that that Pharaoh is putting forth is just nonsense. It's just a matter of trying to make the consequences stop. He will say whatever he can. He will put forth any kind of language that he can in order to make the hail stop coming down. He's had enough. He's willing to play whatever game Moses needs him to play in order to make it stop. He'll do anything to get out of the consequences. You might say it this way. He isn't sorry that he sinned against God or rebelled against him. He's sorry he got caught. Been told that before? He just wants the consequences to go away. So he'll say whatever he has to. Moses isn't fooled, and God certainly is not. And so it is with us. Our repentance is not rooted in the removal of consequences but in the person of God and our sinfulness and rebellion toward him. Listen, you ever heard the phrase that someone was, was scared into salvation? That someone, someone was scared of hell and so all they did is, is they just got their ticket out of hell so that they would be fine. So they walked an aisle, prayed a prayer and said, all right, I'm good, I've punched my ticket, all is well. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with using Fear as part of what is there. The Bible does this. The Bible uses fear. But the fear can't be in the consequence alone. The fear has to drive you to worshiping God. It can't simply be the fear of the consequence. You can't just say, I don't want the punishment, so I'm going to pretend all is well. You can't just say, I'm afraid, I'm sad that I got caught. So long as you're primarily worried about the consequence of sin instead of the nature of the sin, you'll never understand what it means to truly follow God. And you'll be just like Pharaoh. As soon as the consequence is removed, you'll run right back to your old gods, your old idols, your old habits. And that false sense of security will begin to set in again as soon as the pressure relents. Moses says, you're not You're not afraid of God. You don't fear Yahweh. You just want the hail to stop. You don't fear him. As soon as this hail stops and and this one crop is ruined, the next crop will come up right behind it, and you'll say all is well. You're not repenting to God and turning toward him to worship him. You just want the hail to stop. And Pharaoh repents just long enough to get Yahweh off his back, and then he changes his mind again. The game continues, and Pharaoh continues to view himself as the one setting the terms for the negotiation, dictating the terms, despite all the evidence that he has no control, that he's not the one that is all-powerful. He continues to, to place himself in that position. And that's until we get to the eighth plague, locusts. This is Exodus chapter 10. Moses warns that the locusts are about to come. He says, look, this is what's about to happen. These locusts are going to come and they're going to consume everything. As if everything wasn't bad enough, your livestock's all dead, hail has come, some of your servants are dead, some of of your, your, your citizens are dead. These people are all gone. As if that's not bad enough, the locusts are going to come and they're going to clean it out. They're going to finish everything off. And Pharaoh doesn't budge. He says he's fine. 
But then his officials get involved. Look in Exodus chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's officials asked him, How long must this man be a snare to us? Let these men go so that they may worship. Let the men go so that they may worship Yahweh, their God. Do you realize that Egypt is devastated? Pharaoh is too arrogant to compromise. Pharaoh is too full of himself to back down from his stance as he tries to control the terms of the negotiation. But his officials come to him and say, Come on, man, let it go. You're beat. Just admit it and let him go. What's the big deal? It's three days. I mean, this had been going on for weeks now. If Pharaoh just relented in the beginning, they could have been past this and the, the Hebrews could have been back at work by now. You guys know what an actuary is? Anybody know what an actuary is? No? Sort of? Maybe? All right, a few of you. An actuary is somebody who works for an insurance company. This is a math nerd. This is what, a, what, a, what an actuary is. They're a math nerd, and what they do is they, they compile how much something is, how much it, it's going to cost you to pay for your insurance. What they say is, all right, a 16-year-old male has this chance of, uh, th- that's gone through you know, this type of training, that's done this type of thing, that's gone through this type of thing, has this percentage chance of wrecking a car. His car is worth this much, which means we need to charge this much in order for us to make a profit. So what they do is they plug in all the numbers into this big old formula and they say, this is the premium that we need to charge on the insurance so that we can make sure that we come out ahead. If we get enough 16-year-old guys to sign up, we get enough all these other people to sign up, we'll cover the cost of this and he's the one that sets the premiums for how much an insurance company should charge. This is what an actuary is. They're ones that weigh the risk versus the charge so they can make sure they make a profit. They come out ahead in the long run. That's what Pharaoh's officials are doing here. They're telling Pharaoh, don't be dumb. You're being really, really dumb here. Let them go already. Look at what you've lost in your negotiation so far, Pharaoh. We don't, we don't have our, our livestock anymore. We've been covered in flies and frogs and lice. We've been covered in this and that. We've been having to deal with all these different things. Look at what you've lost so far. Just let them go. We're devastated as it is. We can't endure another one. Just let them go. And what they're doing is they're weighing the risk of what's about to happen versus just caving. So Pharaoh listens to his officials. Kind of. Exodus chapter 10, verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship Yahweh your God, Pharaoh said. But exactly who will be going? Moses replied, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, because we must hold Yahweh's festival. And he said to them, May Yahweh be with you if I ever let you and your families go. Look out, you are planning evil. No, only the men may go and worship Yahweh, for that is what you have been asking for. And they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh can't resist. He wants to listen to his officials. He understands the cost of what's about to come. But he feels like he still has to set the terms. He says, fine, go. But before Moses and Aaron can turn to walk out, he says, so who's going anyway? And they say, everybody. And he says, nope, can't do that. I don't trust you guys. I mean, after all, if you go with all of your family, all of your livestock, if all of you go out there, why would you come back? I can't trust you to do that. 
You have no reason to come back here. If you all leave, you're just going to go. I can't let you do that. Just the men can go. Keep the women here. Pharaoh insists on the game of negotiation. And it continues into the ninth plague now, darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verse 24. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship Yahweh. Even your families may go with you. Only your flocks and your herds must stay behind. He can't just say, you get what you want. He can't just say, fine, you get to do whatever you want. He continues to try to hedge. He first is like, all right, fine, now your wives can go. Just keep the animals here. You can't go and do all this stuff. You can't just, just go, do your three-day thing. Just leave the animals here. We need them here. You're not going to need them out there. Just don't take them. Because he knows that, that if they're going to go and they're going to escape, they're going to need those animals. They're going to need them for food. They're going to need them to carry supplies. And he wants to make sure they come back. He's hedging his bets here. He's trying to make sure that he can come out ahead. Moses responded, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings to prepare for Yahweh our God. Even our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind because we will take some of them to worship Yahweh our God. We will not know what we will use to worship Yahweh until we get there. So Moses says, I know this sounds crazy. We don't even know what we're going to do. He just says, go, so we're going. Now that's faith. I could, I could camp out on that verse right there for, for, for a while. We don't even know what God's calling us to do. We just know that we got to go. So we're going. And we need everything that we need just in case. So they're coming with us too, Pharaoh. Pharaoh just won't have that. Verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was unwilling to let them go. Time and time and time again in these, you see these plagues play over and over and over. Pharaoh tries to dictate the terms. He tries to maintain the position of superiority and authority as though he's the one that's in control and then they've got to come to him. He tries to maintain his grip on the situation, his illusion that he is the one that is in charge. He acknowledges God's power. He's happy to do that. Perhaps he even acknowledges God's power over his own gods. He's, he's, he's been able to do that. But that does not matter. His gods may not be in control, but he would be. He couldn't give in. He couldn't lose face that way. He couldn't take that risk. He was too powerful, too important, too proud, too scared. Too convinced that he knew what was best for himself and for Egypt. The negotiations never stopped. But did you notice in all of this how God negotiated back with Pharaoh? He didn't. At all. His terms never changed. The same terms that he brought before the first plague are the same terms he's offering at the ninth plague. Let my people go three days that they can do their worship. And every time that Pharaoh tried to come back, he tried to put a condition on it. He doesn't negotiate. And some of the suggestions from Pharaoh seem like an actually pretty good idea for Pharaoh. Seem like a reasonable compromise for reasonable people. I mean, think about it. If you're in charge of someone and they say, let us all go out here, I promise you, we'll come back. That sounds ridiculous. No king should give in to that demand. 
Why would he trust them? He's right. He has no reason to trust them that they will come back. None. He would look foolish if he said, yeah, I'll let them go. Don't worry. They'll be back. And then like the third day, he's like, well, they should be back any, any minute. I don't see them, but I promise you, I think they're coming because Moses said they'd be back. He's going to look like an idiot if he's lost his whole labor force on the word that they'll come back. It's right for him to mitigate his risk there, right? That's a shrewd negotiator. But God doesn't negotiate, especially when it comes to his authority and to his power. He's not trying to get a better deal for his people. He's doing this because he demands Pharaoh's unquestioned, unconditional surrender. And the application for us this morning is simple. We are too often like Pharaoh. We want to negotiate with God. We want to offer exchanges, propose alternate plans that can, that can mitigate or can flat out eliminate our risks. Is this not how we work? Yeah, God, I'll do that. I'll do that. Just let me take care of this over here first. Yeah, no, that sounds like a great idea, God, but what about, have you thought about this, God? Because I think this would be better over here. Yes, I understand that I should do this over here, but I got a better idea. What do you think about this? This is how we talk to God. This is what our prayer life revolves around for so much of our lives. I remember the first time that I felt like God was calling me into the ministry. I told you I went to school, got a degree in business. My goal was least amount of school, most amount of money. That's all I wanted. That's what, that's what the plan was, right? That's all I wanted. And the first time I felt like God was calling me into to ministry, I remember I told Emily, here's the thing. I feel like God's calling me into ministry. I feel pretty confident he's calling me into ministry. I really feel like that's what, what we're going to do. But I got this degree I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into business for a few years and make some money. I'm going to go into business. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to put it all away knowing that I'm going to go to seminary, and at some point we're just going to be poor. So let's save some money. Let's put it all away, and once we put it all away, then I'll go to school. And even as I said it, I was sitting there like, that's stupid. That's a dumb idea. Why am I even saying I knew it was a bad idea. I knew it was not what God was calling to me calling me to do even as the words came out of my mouth but man it made me feel better it made me feel like that was a much better plan god okay fine you're calling me to do this let me take care of this i'll come back to this later right how's that does that work is that a good deal there was so much risk in following god into this there was so much risk in walking away from a degree that i had just earned There was so much risk going into ministry. Fifteen years later, I feel no different. It's terrifying to follow God. It's terrifying to take those steps. But I knew I had no choice to go to seminary unless I wanted to be Jonah and just run the other way. I know what it's like to say, no, 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 just let me, let me figure out a different way here. So what are you negotiating with God about today? What is it that God is calling you to that you aren't quite sure you can summon the courage to do? Is it something crazy like take a new job, to change majors, to change careers, to go to school, to do something different, to give money away, to adopt a kid, to teach a class, to serve the church, to 
pray with your wife, to pray with your kids? Is it to read your Bible? Is it to find a discipleship group or someone you can pair up with to meet and study the Bible together? What is it God is calling you to do that you're trying to figure out a way you can come to a happy compromise between your schedule and God's demands? And let's just be honest. Money is always going to be an issue whenever you talk about following God. Nobody likes to talk about money. But I'm convinced in our culture today, the bigger choice is time even more so than money. When God demands your time, how will you respond? Will you say, yeah, I'll get there. Okay, fine. Tell you what, you take care of this for me, God. I'll come over here and I'll do this once you take care of this. God, I would do so many of these things if If she weren't such a nag, if he weren't so lazy, if I had more money in the bank, if I had more time, if I had less commitments, if I had this, if I didn't have this, you give me these things, God, you've got a deal. But that's not how he works. Full allegiance. Unconditional surrender. But here's the thing about full allegiance. We stink at it. We constantly go back to our old idols, to our flesh, to these other things that call so much demands for us, the sirens that call to us and call us to go and call us away from who God is. All of us. And this is where the rubber really meets the road. This is where you put your yes on the table. No qualifying negotiations. For all of us, he's called us to step off of our thrones and our own little pharaohs. We all like to rule our own lives, to maintain this illusion of control that we have, to believe that we are good enough, strong enough, and powerful enough. But what we must know is that God is the only one that rules like that. He's the only one that is good enough, strong enough, powerful enough. And each of us has become an enemy combatant to that authority. We like to negotiate on this one especially. This is where the human heart This is where the human heart bows up the most. This is where Pharaoh bows up the most. We have our objections. We like to say, no, 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 I'm not an enemy combatant. Hang on, time out, time out. You can't call me that. I'm here at church. I put money in the box. I teach some. I work, I serve, I do other stuff. I'm not an enemy combatant. Look, I read my Bible like five or six times this week. I prayed a few times. I did this and I did that. I volunteered. See, I'm pretty good. I'm not an enemy here. And we say, God, if I'm bringing this to the table, we've got to be able to negotiate a better deal here. Let me hang on to just a few of these things. How about I give you Sunday mornings, maybe one or two front porch meetings a, a, a month, assuming something better doesn't come up, a little bit of money, and we'll call it even Stephen. Deal? This is how we negotiate with God. Let me do a handful of good things. You give me a handful of good things. We're even. And this is how most people approach Christianity. Full-on negotiation. And it's a lie straight from hell. The only negotiation God will hear from us is unconditional surrender. Jim Elliott, the missionary that lost his life, famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot gain to keep that which he cannot lose. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, 
And calling to the crowds, to his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross, a.k.a. die. If anyone would come after me, let him die and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? No negotiation. It's all on the table. All chips are in. And God can take whatever he wants. And here's the thing. If you say, God, all my chips are in, he's probably going to say, all right, I'll take that one. I don't know what that one is, but he'll, he'll take it. And he'll see if you mean it, just like Pharaoh. But the beauty of all of this is that we can't do that. We can't give that all without the help of Christ, without the cross. And so we put it all on the table, we give it to God, and we say, this is all yours, I don't hold on to any of it, I repent of my gods, I turn from my gods, and I worship you and you alone. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what it means to follow God. So is your yes on the table this morning? What negotiations do you need to stop? What negotiations do you need to give up? How do you need to realize that you are not standing in the position of the, of the investor saying, what terms can we agree on? But instead, you are coming to God saying, what mercy, God, I need that mercy. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we come to you confessing that in our arrogance, in our pride, in our self-reliance, in our illusion of control and power, we far too often negotiate with you. We try to hold on to these things. We, we, we try to come to you and say, you can have me, God, but just let me have this, God. Father, we repent of that this morning. Father, help us to believe and to have faith that when we give you everything, we gain everything. But when we hold on to things, we lose it all. Father, give us faith to trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.